know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on the podcast, we are grateful for the opportunity to welcome back Professor Scott Strauss to talk to him about his summer course, The Comparative Study of Genocide. We also wanted to touch base with Professor Strauss and wish him the best as he embarks on a new and exciting next stage of his career journey at UC Berkeley next fall. In addition to teaching two very popular undergraduate courses, The Politics of Human Rights and the aforementioned Comparative Study of Genocide, Professor Strauss has authored, co-authored, and edited a long list of publications and books, among which the most recent solo authored are Making and Unmaking Nations, War, Leadership, and Genocide in Modern Africa, which has won four awards including the 2018 Mayer Award for Ideas Improving World Order. He's also published several books on Rwanda and co-authored a textbook on international studies. The first things first, Professor Strauss, welcome back to 1050 Bascom, and thanks so much for being with us today and spending some time with our podcast during what must be a crazy busy summer as you transition from the chair of the political science department to your move to UC Berkeley in the fall. You know, we've you've been such a pleasure on this podcast time and time again, and it's been great getting to know you over the last two years. I think I can say for all of us on 1050 and in the UW-Madison political science and university at large that you will be missed. So we'll miss you, but glad that you're moving on to perhaps bigger and better things. Oh, thank you. It's very kind. I will very much miss it here. And miss you guys. You guys have been amazing. Well, thank you. We do appreciate that. And, you know, we want to spend the bulk of our time, while we've still got you around, talking about your comparative study of genocide class. But we can't not ask you a bit about the big news. You know, we're sorry to see you go, but we know you and your family have an amazing opportunity out there in the uh, sunny state of California at UC Berkeley. Could you share a little bit with us about your move to UC Berkeley and what you're going to be doing over there? Sure. I will be following my wife, who has been appointed as the next Dean of the Arts and Humanities at UC Berkeley. She's Her name is Sarah Geyer, and she is a real, in my view, a real leader in the humanities field. And she used to direct the Center for the Humanities here in Madison and is president of an international consortium on humanity centers. And she got this amazing job. And it's a job in many ways that she could not turn down. It's a category change. It's an incredible university, incredible humanities program. And without getting into the weeds, like the way the deanship is structured there is just a wonderful opportunity for her. And so as part of her recruitment, I was ultimately offered a position as a professor of political science in the department at Berkeley, which is where I got my PhD and it's where we met initially. And so it's a kind of homecoming for me too. And it's of course a great department and, and we're very excited, but also very sad to leave Madison. Madison has been both as a city, but also as a university has been a phenomenal place for us uh, for the last 17 years. Both We both got started here and came up through the ranks. And I now serve as chair of this department and trying to give back what people had given to me uh, in the past. And so it's, it's bittersweet in that sense. 
for sure. Who would win the fight, a badger or a golden bear? <laughs> I, I gotta go with the bear on that one. I'm sad to say, <laughs> just by by sheer size. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Well, among the many reasons we are sad to see you go, of course, are two of your most famous courses, The Politics of Human Rights and Comparative Studies of Genocide, which won't be offered anymore, you know, at least anytime soon in your absence. But you are teaching Comparative Studies of Genocide this summer. So I think that we should definitely start with that. So, you know, in this conversation, as we're talking about genocide, what are some of the things that you're thinking of when you're defining genocide, like what that means and what kind of problems exist with our definition or our concept of genocide? Yeah. So, I mean, just let me say that there's something paradoxical, or I don't know if that's the right word, about teaching this course as my last course at UW-Madison. It was the first course I taught at UW-Madison 17 years ago, and it's sort of probably the course that I care the most about, you know, that and the human rights course, as you mentioned. It's both really close to my research agenda, and it's just a course that I've taught and tried to nurture over over many years. And so I, I transitioned it to an online summer course last year for the first time, and this will be the second and, and probably the last time it'll be taught in that format. But to answer your question, Adam, so genocide, one of the things that I sort of hone in on right in the first week of the course is that this is a, we have a kind of general sense of what genocide is, and it's defined in international law, but really quickly we'll see that this concept is contested, that there are many different definitions and different people have different ideas of genocide when they're citing the term. And the formal definition in the UN Genocide Convention is the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, a racial, or religious group. But in practice, like exactly what that means, you know, is, is again, is contested. So, so the, this, the concept is really important because it helps identify cases and therefore helps set up comparisons. And this is a comparative politics course in the sense that what we're doing is we're studying different genocides and trying to see what they have in common and therefore what kind of causal structure they have in common. That's, you know, classic kind of political science question. But to get that right, you have to think about what the foundational concept is, what the, what the kind of foundational concept of genocide is. And then to kind of branch off from there and talk about how you approach studying genocide after we've defined it, is genocide viewed as primarily, say, an international crime that belongs, say, in the realm of courts and tribunals for its investigation? Or do you think it's more appropriately approached as a macro social event that social scientists should interrogate? Yeah, thanks for the question, Sam. So I think there's a kind of tension in the field because on the one hand, you have an international law and that sets up all kinds of legal questions. So prosecuting genocide in a court in an international criminal tribunal, prosecuting genocide in a domestic context or anything along those lines. And you have this sort of codified legal definition. But on the other hand, you have genocide, which is a kind of social science term or a kind of research term equivalent in some ways to other major macro events like revolution, democracy, civil war, etc. You know, the kinds of outcomes that political scientists like to study. And that's how I approach it in the course, right? That you have this kind of international legal conceptualization, which is a bedrock for thinking about genocide on the one hand. But on the other hand, I sort of 
lean on more social science definitions and treat it as a political phenomenon that you can study in its own right. And also, as I suggested earlier, something that you can then compare across cases or you can compare cases across time and across and across regions. And so that's the kind of you know, social science move in some ways. Now, both of those things have been resisted for a long period of time. Like number one, people didn't think that genocide was a, a phenomenon that occurred in different parts of, of the world and in different times, right? It was really strongly associated with the Holocaust, right? And with one particular case and which was seen to be unique and uncomparable and all of these things. And I think that that idea, while certainly some still have that idea and there are unique aspects to the Holocaust for sure, I think there's a general recognition that there is this phenomenon of genocide that can be compared. And again, what is it? What is that phenomenon? Is that the definitional question? The other point to make is that a lot of what I do in the course as a political scientist is to think about explanation, to think about theory, like why does this level of violence happen? What are the factors that drive it? And again, I think some folks don't like that approach in the sense that you know, you can't understand why these events happen, right? That there's something unknowable about it. And by trying to explain it, you're justifying it in some ways. And, and I try to walk that line a little bit by saying, look, it, we should try to understand it. We should try to explain it. It's a really important part of our world, but that doesn't mean you're excusing it or justifying it or rationalizing it or any of those things. And so I think, you know, I try to walk that line a little bit in the course and in my work as well. Would you be able to give us a brief overview of what some of those major theories explaining genocide are? And not to like tease the course too much, but maybe apply those to certain examples that might be your favorite that you talk about in the course. Yeah, I mean, in some ways the course is set up around what I call kind of classic theories of genocide, which would be prejudice, hatred, discrimination, scapegoating, you know, the the kinds of things you probably would learn about in high school if you took, you know, if you had some exposure to the Holocaust, or if you ever went to a Holocaust museum or whatever. I think kind of a sort of standard or common wisdom understanding of what it is that drives this type of violence. And so that's sort of the anchor, you know, prejudice, discrimination, hatred are the main theories. And, you know, applied to different cases, you'd be you know, thinking about like in the Holocaust case, like anti-Semitism, right? That that's the fundamental root of what happened inside of, uh, you know, in, in the Holocaust. Or in the case, let's say of Rwanda, it would be that there was this sort of deep prejudice against the Tutsi population, which is the minority population that against whom genocide was committed. And I contrast some of those kind of classic theories with, I think, more contemporary theories, which in some ways I think hinge on, or a lot of them hinge on the importance of, of crisis, of upheaval, of war, and the sort of macro level environment in which these these ten, these levels of violence tend to happen. They're usually some type of major upheaval. It can be a transition from a single party dictatorship to a multi-party democracy. They're usually occurring in the context of either a civil war or interstate war. There's usually some type of major you know, economic crisis. All these things kind of packed together creates a period of sort of deep uncertainty and crisis and insecurity. And it's in that context that you see the kind of radical politics develop. And so I emphasize that that context is very important and try to get across the ways in which there's this process of radicalization, meaning that folks start in one place. Folks, By folks, I mean like political parties and leaders and even public start in one place. But over time, 
those positions radicalize and escalate toward harder positions where low levels of violence escalate to higher levels of violence and more radical, I think, ideas develop. And that's the other, I think, more modern set of explanations has to do also with ideology and the, the kinds of hyper-nationalism or what I call ethnic or organic nationalism that seems to be also at the core of a lot of these cases. So, you know, let's say in the case of, again, let's just, you know, you asked about, about examples, Claire, like in the Holocaust, right, that would put a strong emphasis on the ideology of Nazism, the kind of perfect society that Hitler and the other high-level, high-ranking Nazis wanted to try to create. And so it's connected to anti-Semitism, but it's a slightly different vision of what it is that they were trying to create. Again, then in the context of, you know, post-global depression, and then ultimately in the context of World War II and a sort of epic fight from their perspective with the Soviet Union, and all of those things are some of the factors, I think. And then this question of radicalization, and one of the things we'll trace, let's say, in the case of the Holocaust, but applies to other cases, is, right, the sort of treatment of the Jews in the case of the Holocaust sort of started out in one place, but then ultimately escalates to full-scale, like, industrial extermination. And those, you know, that sort of tracing that evolution is quite important and trying to understand what the steps were in that evolution and what were the factors that shaped that escalation have been really important. In the context of Rwanda, like, again, just to come back to another case that I've studied and thought about a lot over time, right, that would emphasize on the side of ideology that there was a, a Hutu nationalism. So Hutu were the majority group in the country. Um, they controlled Rwanda more or less since the late 1950s and early 1960s. But there was a kind of core ideology there about Hutu rule versus Tutsi rule. And we kind of trace the evolution of that. And in the context of these sort of macro phenomena, there was a civil war in Rwanda and a broader kind of political transition from a, from a single party dictatorship model to a multi-party competitive structure. So trying to understand, again, how those sort of ideology and the macro level uh, events then shape policies and, and, and strategies of violence on the ground, sort of what I try to tease out in the course. You explore the Armenian case in this course, we believe. What is the international and historic significance of President Biden declaring mass killings of Armenians an example of genocide earlier this year? Yeah, it was a really interesting development in a lot of different ways. I mean, the recognition of genocide has been a core demand for Armenian diasporic populations for a long, for a long time, more or less since the concept of genocide was coined in the 1940s. And I think it's partly a recognition that's a way of countering denial uh, on the part of initially the Ottoman state, and then it's sort of a modern inheritor of the Turkish state, and a recognition of the level of suffering that the Armenian populations went through in, you know, in 1915 and 1916 in particular during World War I. And so many U.S. presidents have previously promised on the campaign trail that they would formally declare what happened in, you know, in 1915 and 1916 to be a genocide. And Biden followed through on it. I wouldn't have predicted that he would have been the first U.S. president to do so. But, you know, I think he's surprising us in, in lots of different ways. So, I mean, I think in terms of the significance is that it reflects, I think, an international consensus, certainly among scholars, human rights folks, right, the genocide happened, right? This is a, you know, we were talking here about somewhere around a million and a half civilians killed, clearly a particular group that was targeted. It was the Armenian Christian population of the Ottoman state. They were massacred, then pushed into the, de and then sort of driven in caravan, caravans toward the desert, attacked along the way 
lots of sexual violence, lots of dispossession, and then pushed into a desert where they could not survive and where they also were attacked. And so it was a you know classic campaign of violence where the purpose seems to have been the destruction of the population, and that's sort of the key criterion for for genocide. So I think it I think Biden's call in some ways reflects kind of the obvious in some ways where where it was particularly bold is that he was willing to go against I mean obvious is too strong where I think reflects consensus. Um, where it was particularly bold is that he was willing to accept the fallout from Turkey, which has often said that it would retaliate if any form, there's formal recognition of genocide. And I don't know, I haven't followed all the details since then. I mean, what kind of retaliation there will be, but that has often been the deal that US presidents have not been willing to make. That is, they've often said, look, we need Turkish security cooperation and strategic cooperation, particularly in the Middle East. And that, that sort of ultimately is more important than this, this more human rights declaration of recognizing it as genocide. So Biden decided not to do that. Uh, it was a bold move. I was surprised by it. And I think we'll see exactly how that shakes out. I mean, I guess one other point to make is just this sort of these fights over the words show how important this concept of genocide is. And that's an idea, too, that I, I often sort of hit home in the course, um, that it's just a word. On the other hand, it's a really powerful word. And there are these, you know, major diplomatic fights over whether or not to call something genocide. Right? And we're seeing that with China today, too, right? They're in Xinjiang, in Western China, that there is a big debate as to whether or not the treatment of the Uyghur population is it you know should be called genocide and and uh, and that I think is a similar like there's a lot of intensity around the word uh, and I think that we see that in almost every case that we look at. If we could ask, would you weigh in on the um, treatment of the Uyghur population in China? What does the debate around labeling that event of violence a genocide or not? And what maybe label would you put on it if you had to at this point? I think that there have been two major places from which you see the call for recognition of, of what's happening to the Uyghur population as genocide. Certainly you have the Uyghur population and the diasporic Uyghur population, the Uyghur population to the extent we can hear their voices because they're shut down from within China. But I think similarly to many, many kinds of situations want recognition of genocide as a way of catapulting the um, significance of what's going on. And I think it just sort of elevates the level of seriousness. And it's sort of, you know, genocide is often called the crime of crimes. I think that hierarchy can be problematic sometimes because I think it puts too much pressure on this one word, which I'll maybe come to in just a second. But I think that's sort of one place. The other place has been really political. And, and I think that is that you have a set of folks that are want to hit China, uh, and you saw in, in Trump's last days, uh, you had secretary, and I think it was actually his last day that Secretary of State Pompeo declared what was happening in Xinjiang to be to be genocide. And I think part that was part of a broader acrimony or or fight with China that the Trump administration was pushing. Now the Biden administration has been a little bit more cautious, but has ultimately, I think, you know, followed the same avenue in terms of in terms of its recognition of the weaker population, what's happening to the weaker population's genocide. Now, the academic debate, the sort of definitional debate has to do with what counts as the destruction of a group or the attempted destruction of a group. Okay. So for those that want to call what's happening genocide, I think there are two elements or two primary, as I read it, two primary elements to the argument that it's genocide. 
One is a kind of destruction of culture. That is that the Uyghur population are Muslim and they're essentially unable to practice their religion, their culture, their language. And that's a form of destruction of a group. And the second has to do with a particular clause within the genocide population, which has to do with the prevention of births, right? That one of the listed acts of genocide, so there is the kind of general definition of the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, racial, ethnic, or religious group, right? But then there are five specified acts that are indicative of that intent. And one of them is the prevention of, of births and, and the of, a, of this group, right? As part of this broader sense of destruction. And in Xinjiang, there has been forced sterilization, rape, and other forms of curtailing the reproductive capacity of Uyghur women who are detained in re-education camps. And I think that particular act has provided the legal grounds for arguing that it is genocide. Now, I think the counter argument is sort of like, well, is all of this amounting to the destruction of the group or the repre- or is it the repression of the group? Is it a forced assimilation of the group? And are those things equivalent to genocide? And I, I tend to think of genocide as physical destruction, right? I think you can make a legal, and this comes back to this sort of legal versus social science definition of the concept, right? I think there is a legal argument to make, in my view, that you know that you're on solid ground for the reasons I just stated that you could claim this is genocide. But from a kind of social science sense, in the, if you think about genocide as the sort of physical destruction of groups or the attempted physical destruction of groups, there, there, I think it's you're a little, it's a little less clear to me that that's what's happening in Xinjiang. Like this is clearly massive repression, massive human rights violations. But I think it's more about control of groups rather than destruction of groups. And that I think from a kind of political logic is actually quite a different approach. Um, the political role and, and forced assimilation of groups rather than their destruction. So that's how I tend to think of it. I would think of it as a crime against humanity. So here you've got kind of systematic and large scale violence against the civilian population, mass detentions without trial or charge, uh, some of, you know, there have been, as I said, sexual violence, forced sterilization, certainly beatings and torture, and in some cases death, forced labor or slave labor, as some people call it. And all of those things sort of, to me, suggest a large scale, you're talking about mil- you know, millions of people in detention, you know, thousands, if not hundreds or tens of thousands of people who have faced these kinds of violence and human rights abuses. So it's systematic, it's large scale, it's happening against civilian populations. That's all like signals crimes against humanity to me. Yeah, absolutely. Big, heavy topic. Your, and we know your course also examines some negative cases where there are ingredients of genocide, or like you were just talking, there are, you know, instances of a group of people attempting to control a different group of people. Can you give us some examples and theories about why genocide doesn't always happen when these conditions are apparent? Yeah, so it's the move is a kind of methodological move. And so a lot of the way that social scientists have been studying how and why genocide happens is to compare different genocides and see what they have in common, and to build out theory from that process. And so what I did in my last book was sort of take that as a foundation, but say, okay, well, let's also look at the so-called dogs that didn't bark. That is the cases that had those ingredients, but that ultimately the political path was not genocide, right? It could have been violence, could have been bad, but it wasn't this attempt to destroy the group. 
and from that to try to back out and try to try to refine our theories of genocide to see what it is that these non-cases, what they had in common together and what they share that's different from the ones that resulted in genocide. And now I'm not choosing Denmark, you know, I'm not choosing, you know, cases that have no chance of going to genocide, right? I was looking, you know, and I look in the course at like at Cote d'Ivoire is a country in West Africa that in the 2010s, uh, you know, had a civil war, had a nationalist movement, had a kind of economic crisis, political crisis, like a lot of the ingredients that we, that we think of, you know, a lot of discrimination, a history of prejudice against, in this case, the Muslim population. You know, that was one of the cases that I looked at. I also looked a lot at Mali. Mali's been in the news lately. Another case in West Africa where you had, again, major political upheaval. You had a civil war. You had a particular minority group that had been the subject of discrimination for 100 years. And, you know, those are the things that I think we, we think about as being really important for, for genocide. The, the arguments that I developed in the course briefly and, and, and certainly in the book at longer length has to have to do with, and like in particular, the importance of ideology and sort of what the kind of sort of central ideology of the rulers of the state are, is, and how much consensus around those ideas there is. And so what I found to be in Cote d'Ivoire and Mali is that there, while there were some extremists and nationalists within them, there also were very substantial groups that had a counter ideology, counter narrative that was rooted in a longer tradition within those countries that had to do with tolerance and moderation and multi-ethnicity and multi-religiosity as central to the political identity of those states. And those, I think that created a political force that countered or moderated the extremists and nationalists. And that ultimately is why you had different outcomes there. I want to move then from the dogs that didn't bark to maybe ways that we can stop the dogs from barking, if you will. Are there ways that genocide can be prevented or effective tactics to prevent it? And, you know, I always like to ask, boiling it down to just the level of an individual average person, are there things that, say, like average citizens of a country who aren't necessarily political or media elites can do to help try and prevent genocide. Yeah, I wish there were a magic wand. I mean, and I think, you know, in some ways I would caution against the way you've set it up. I mean, I appreciate the question, but we also want to be respectful of the fact that we can often solve problems around the world just because we want to, and that these are very deep, very, uh, you know, in you know, I think complex, intense situations that are, it's very difficult to move the chain, so to speak, on them. It's not to say it's impossible. I'm just saying it's not, it's not easy. And I think one of the downs, one of the things that I've noticed in teaching over the years is that I, I or one of the things I've emphasized in teaching over the years is I don't want to create a kind of false, you know, savior complex or a sense that just by caring, we can all of a sudden make the world a better place. And I think there's a kind of hubris associated with that, that I just want to be a little cautious about. But I think to get to your question, not, you know, not to push it away too far, I think it, the average person, the most important thing is awareness, I think is just to not turn tune these things out. And the more people that care and are willing to learn about and engage with it is ultimately within our political process, within a democratic political process, will bubble up to, I think, pressure on political authorities or pressure on organizations or pressure on media to cover it. If no one cares, then, you know, then politicians are not going to act, the journalists are not going to cover it, and the NGOs are not going to, you know, have a foundation for acting, they'll be kind of voices in the wilderness. So you, 
the places where you've had over time, where you've had, I think, serious social movements or social pressure or political pressure have been ones in which there were there were kind of widespread interest and awareness and mobilization. So from student groups, from religious groups, from particular identity populations or political particular political parties where that mobilization leads to a kind of social movement that leads to pressure on governments that leads to a different level of prioritization of the many different human rights or, or political crises that exist in the world. So I think, I think the main thing that someone can do is like try to learn, right? If you figure, you know, what's happening in Ethiopia today, what's happening in Western China today, what's happening in Myanmar today, you know, or in South Sudan, like those are some of the big cases or Syria for that matter. You know, try not to tune it out and actually to read the story and ask questions and try to understand what's going on. I think that's really, you know, I say, I'm an educator, of course, I'm going to say that, but I think that's certainly one of the key things. I mean, when you kind of move up the ladder to governments or to the UN or to NGOs, I think, you know, you're talking about different sets of tools and different sets of policies that, you know, range anywhere from, you know, the non-coercive, which are forms of mediation, forms of diplomacy, forms of documentation, right, to the more coercive, which would be like targeted sanctions or threats of international prosecution, you know, to even the most coercive, which would be some type of military action to either protect civilians or to interrupt the perpetration of the violence. Now, the, all of those things really, I, in my view, their, their viability and their effectiveness depend upon particular circumstances, right? In China, the room for maneuver is going to be very different than it will be, let's say, in Ethiopia or the Gambia or, you know, for that matter, Syria. So I think it's important, you know, I think the policymaker when looking at these situations is often sort of thinking about, well, what is, you know, what are, what are, what can I do and what are the negative consequences to what I do and how, you know, how significant are those negative consequences, right? Going to war with China is a very significant negative consequence. You know, in Syria, possibly going to war with Russia or scuttling the Iran nuclear deal. I mean, those are all big problems to, to wrestle with when one thinks about how to respond to these mass human rights uh, crises and situations. So I think there's a lot of variation in what, what conditions exist that allow for different kinds of action. What have some of the difficulties been teaching about mass violence or mass atrocity situations? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, this is a course that when I first started teaching it, and I even actually almost every time I teach it, I often, I myself have nightmares. And I often kind of tell students in the course that, that, that it's, not uncommon that they will have nightmares. And of course, that's not always very, you know, that it doesn't necessarily become a magnet for the course, um, but it's true. I mean, the fact of the matter is like, look, I can intellectualize it. We're, it's a very analytically oriented course. I'm a political scientist, but what we're dealing with there is the mass destruction of human lives. And, and when you start to think about that and really talk about it, you're talking about the deaths of hundreds of thousands, millions of people. And that's really hard to deal with. Uh, and so I think I don't have a magic bullet for how to deal with it, except to create the space within the course for people to talk about it or to recognize that those emotions or responses are quite normal and appropriate. Um, and it would in some ways be odd if we didn't have an emotional reaction to what it is that we were talking about. One of the things I do in the course, and I thought really hard about this, is how, how to show video. Um, so I, I use much more video in this course than I do in any other thing that I teach. 
that I have taught in the last 17 years on this campus. And part of that comes from a kind of guarding against the sense that I am abstracting too much about what it is that we're talking about. And I want people to see and in some ways feel in a way that a video can do that other forms of communication can't what it is that what it is we're talking about. Um, so that could be showing that could be showing images from the death camps, that could be showing images from from Rwanda, not a lot. Uh, and, the, and the really tricky part, and, and I don't think many filmmakers do this well, unfortunately, is how to show that responsibly, right? How not to use violence in a kind of pornographic way where you're just sort of shocking people for the sake of shocking them or or you're treating victims only as victims. Like how do you have some humanity in the way that you represent the violence through video? And that's tough. And I've tried and thought about it and tried to use material that I think is respectful and thoughtful uh, and ethical, um, but you get that in the course. And so that also I think is hard to watch. It's very hard to watch. And I don't know how I feel about sort of trigger warnings and stuff like that, but I certainly warn people that it's hard to watch and that they should you know, if they need to turn it off, they should. So anyway. Are there other things about the course specifically that we haven't talked about yet that you would like to tell our listeners? Well, look, I hope people will take it. If, if anyone out there is looking for a summer course to take, and it's a course, again, that I really care deeply about. I think the only thing we haven't really talked about is sort of the questions of comparison and, right, how do you compare without, you know, flattening differences, right, that you respect the difference, you know, all these different cases are quite different in some ways, right? Cambodia is really different from the Armenian genocide, it's really different from Rwanda, it's really different from the Holocaust, but still find these baseline similarities and commonalities. And I think that kind of question of comparison is also one that I try to bring out in the course, which I think has relevance beyond, let's say, just the, you know, just the topic of genocide, but I think applies to social scientists engaged in comparative work. Let's talk a bit about your time at UW-Madison, maybe reflect a little. What do you think you'll miss most about teaching and working at the university? Working at the university, I think they're great colleagues here, amazing colleagues here. And I think one of the things that I have really appreciated being here and working here over the years is this combination of of kind of collegiality and supportiveness with sort of seriousness and excellence that I think that combo is really unusual and makes for an incredible working environment, right? Why with that I mean that people, everyone here like wants other people to succeed. That's a very rare, that's a very rare workplace environment. And they're also have very high standards. And that's a really nice combination. I think that's sort of Madison's sweet spot from a workplace environment, from a faculty point of view and staff point of view, in terms of what it, what we're trying to create. And I think that makes for a lot of really, you know, I think healthy job satisfaction. Um, within the within the university and certainly within the department, so I think I'll miss that. I'm not. I don't know exactly how it is in other places, but I know anecdotally that there are lot. There's lots of acrimony, lots of divisions in departments and stuff like that. And and that really doesn't. We have our differences, but they're not. It's not polarized, and people really make as a result make very good decisions. Like as an organization, let's say as our department, as an organization. We make healthy decisions. We make healthy decisions about hiring, about policy, about tough conversations. And I've seen that over and over again, whether I was just an assistant professor or chair of the department, that I think we are a department that makes a very good decisions overall. And I think I will, I will really, I think miss that and miss the environment behind that. Students are amazing here. I mean, I again I don't have a lot of experience otherwise. I this is my first job 
first academic job and and it's been my only one. But you know, students here are amazing. I mean, I I, you know, look, I teach. I think a lot of people who are interested in political science are interested in American politics or they're or they're interested in political theory, right? I think um, I think you know, I teach about the rest of the world. And I think that one of the things that's so exciting about teaching students here has been a sense of curiosity, of openness to learning and wanting to really absorb absorb information about parts of the world that they may not have visited, they didn't learn about in high school, they've only had minimal exposure to in the media. And I think that that sort of hunger and curiosity, which I think is a, a lot of what a college education is about, I, I see over and over again in students. You know, I think the students overall here just have been a pleasure to, to work with and teach. And I, I, I can't tell you how much satisfaction it has given me over the years to like, like even students that I, from my first time I taught the genocide class 17 years ago, I'm still in touch with and to follow their careers and what they've done and to think about that is, uh, has been enormously, you know, just been wonderful experience. So I think I will, I will certainly miss that, that sort of teaching folks here. And, uh, you know, I'm always like, I'm always surprised when people enroll in my classes. It's like, why would you take a class on genocide or human rights or African politics, right? And, and yet, you know, and people do. But I've, I really have loved the students. I've worked with both in these large lecture courses, you know, individual theses um, and more intensive spaces. So I, I will miss that very much. And I think I speak for everyone saying that you will also be missed by all of those students. The people now need to know, what is your favorite Madison coffee shop? What is your favorite Madison restaurant? And do you have a favorite Babcock ice cream flavor? So my favorite cafe is Bradbury's, which is off the Capitol. Uh, a, they have amazing espresso drinks and uh, and the like, uh, and uh, amazing crepes as well and, and baked goods. But that's been a long time favorite. My favorite restaurant used to be a place called Four Quarter, that it, but it closed. And I don't know. I haven't really been to restaurants in so long. It's been a long time. It's been, what, 16, 18 months since I was in a restaurant? I don't really know anymore. But there are many. The first that we, when we first moved here, we, we gravitated to a place called Lombardino's, which is near our house and has, has excellent Italian food. And yeah, I don't know. I have to think about that a little bit more. I mean, I love Dottie's for, you know, for its own, you know, for its own sake and, uh, and Gray's in the Capitol is also excellent. So that thought that, so I am a kind of minship guy. I've always been a minship guy. And, you know, I, I know it's not super creative, not Babcock special, but I still love minship. Yeah, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Who needs all the fancy flavors when the basics will will do and often do much better? I don't know. I have to I have to butt in for Blue Moon here. Blue Moon. Oh, come on now. Yeah, I I can't quite deal with the blue part, but you know, I know that I know the green in the midship is artificial too. Uh, artificial, schmartificial, as long as it's delivering that uh, you know delicious flavor and tantalizing color. While we've still got you on the pod, is there anything that you feel like? we should have asked you but didn't or anything that you feel like our listeners need to know i don't know i think uw madison is such a special institution and i think madison is a phenomenal city i mean i don't know if i've mentioned this in previous podcasts but i'm from new york city you know i did my phd at berkeley i never thought i would end up in madison i never sort of imagined my in my life that i'd end up in madison wisconsin and, and it's been a phenomenal place to be 
I think the institution is very special. I think, I mean, as I said earlier, I think this combination of excellence and supportiveness is very unusual and just has a great vibe to it. It's just a, that there's so many great people here. And, um, and, I, and I think that I, I just am so grateful to whoever it is that had the vision and whenever it was, right? Either in the 19th century or in the 1950s when I think the university really expanded of building a phenomenal you know, university in the upper Midwest. I mean, they really accomplished that. And I hope over the years that, that there is consensus across the political aisle of the centrality and importance for that. I just think it's such a special institution and I, I think it serves, it has a niche. And I think having something we didn't talk about, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit here, but you know, I think you know, teaching in a public institution, I'm going to UC Berkeley, which is also a public institution, but I think there's something really important and special about teaching in a public institution. The numbers of people you can reach, the diversity of their backgrounds, I think is super important. And, and I've really learned about that here and really embrace that and, and love that part of the mission of being a faculty member. And I think there's a lot, you know, at least I think maybe it's gotten more polarized now, but when I first moved here, the kind of respect for UW-Madison and the UW system around the state has been palpable. And I felt pride as a professor, you know, as, a, as an employee of the university, now, you know, of course, chair of the department, I think, to, to carry that forward. Um, so I think that I just, I just do think it's a really special place and very special university. And I think the Madison is also just such a fun town. It's just such a great town. And we've loved living here really have loved living here so i'm leaving not because i have anything negative not a word negative to say about having been here it's just that you know we have this opportunity and in particular you know sarah my wife has this sort of category changing opportunity and uh and of course berkeley is also a great place so you know we're very excited but um but i only have great things to say about the university and the town we have one final question we'd love to ask you and it's a question we've been asking a lot um, of our guests. It's been a long year, year and a half. The time's been dark, concerning, troubling, scary. Um, it looks like things are changing for the positive, but what are you hopeful for? I'm a political scientist. I'm actually hopeful that we can restore faith in government and have a sense that there is a sense of a collective good that we can recover. And I don't know how we've lost that so intensely. But I come from having studied places that collapse, that, in, you know, fall into civil war, that where the state does not function very well. And uh, to watch us in the United States undo, you know, in many ways, what has been, a, you know, has been a great political system is very frustrating to watch. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that we will be able to piece back together a sense of a sense of collective will and one that is inclusive um, but also that has some restoration of, of faith in in government um, now again we're political scientists it's very probably a predictable answer um, I think the other thing that has been really hard to watch and this doesn't exactly answer your question Addison I mean I have young ch younger children I have a 14 year old daughter and a 10 year old son it's been a terrible year for them, just a terrible year. Both, I think on sort of both ends of the age spectrums. Like we all have faced challenges, but like for folks who are older and folks who are younger, I think it's been a particularly really hard year. 
And I guess what I'm hopeful for is just somehow that this will get us to refocus on some of the really important things in life and a reminder to keep our eyes on the prize of what we most value in the world and in our relationships. And even small things like kindness, I think, is extremely important. So um, anyway, that's at least my best my best shot at your answer. Well, thank Any you question. so much, Professor Strauss. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure to work under you as, you know, in official capacity in the political science department. And we wish you all the best in your pursuit at UC Berkeley. And I know I speak for both Sam and I when I say uh, thank you for all these opportunities. It's been my pleasure. And I think the podcast, as I said before, is just a phenomenal, phenomenal development in the department. And that's credit to all of you. So thank you for everything you've done. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.